It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. David Priest got a 10 out of 10 room raider recently, and I'm jealous. I got a 9 out of 10 room raider. But room raider is my enemy. So this this puts me in a difficult situation of whether I want to accept the compliment or continue on with my bitter and one-sided feud (laughs) what is your what is your beef with room raider i think it's uh well i can say this in a a more or less jerky way uh the polite way (laughs) is that i think it uh has a very defined aesthetic that uh many people do not and cannot meet and particularly at the beginning of the pandemic it was Uh, setting a standard for how people's homes should look in the middle of a once in a lifetime emergency that was fundamentally not something that most people could meet. The mean version of that is that I think that it is uh, a tool of the bourgeoisie. (laughs) I will say that I did not, I do not enjoy Room Raider in part because I did not enjoy having, I do not enjoy having to worry about what my own home looks like when I occasionally appear on television. But also, I will admit to, as Quinta knows, a deep obsession with the backgrounds of people who have appeared in recorded interviews before the January 6th committee. So I can't like totally dismiss the idea that we should be having conversations about this. So I think it's different if you're appearing under oath to testify about an insurrection. <laughs> I will say Liz Cheney's backgrounds, top notch. And very white. Very, yeah, very Wyoming. Wyoming, yes. Yeah. Wait, can can you all remind me what the amazing I forget the lawyer's name, but he had that amazing background. The the, the January Mr. Hirschman. Eric Hirschman. Yeah. What was in his background? He had a painting of a panda rising out of water that evidently was like centrally featured in the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. Or something similar to it. I did read an article that clarified that he acquired the painting before the movie was filmed. <laughs> But he still chose to have it in his background am while I, testifying. Am I also correct that someone uh, was recorded being interviewed before a virtual background that is from... From Quinta, Queer you, Eye. Yes, you're, you're not I along. This is like, the former general counsel of the Oath Keepers, which somehow just makes it so much better. That is uh, Like maybe no one was going to notice that that was what uh, the virtual background was of. He could He could use a makeover, both stylistically and... Morally. She, Alan. That's a woman. Oh, ouch. I, you know what? I shouldn't have assumed. You're right. Women can be insurrectionists too. Exactly. Hashtag 2022. <laughs> Hashtag girl boss. I was going to say that's the, that's the next stage of girl boss. <laughs> girl boss took a weird turn in 2022. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Reasons in Time. Technically a sequel to a video game, but still counts for purposes of this exercise. I'd only have to do for a few more weeks. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined by one of our favorite repeat guests, repeat customers here at Rational Security, our fellow Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Fellow, Molly Reynolds. Molly, thank you for joining us. It's good to be back. 
What is it like for you when Congress is in recess? Is it like is it like you are in recess or are you do you have withdrawal? Do your hands start shaking for your lack of like procedural measures to, to be following? What, what, what exactly is this period of your life like? Molly goes back into her burrow and just does her recess hibernation. That's what I assumed all Congress watchers do. I, I wish that were true. It's just the it's the time to cash up on everything that I wasn't paying attention to uh, in the like last two frantic weeks before the recess started. So unfortunately, I uh, it is it is less chaotic, um, but it is not uh, it is not hibernation, unfortunately. Well, we are excited to have you here today for what we are calling the Margate v. Waterlago edition, as we try and decide what to name our newest favorite scandal, which is making a repeat appearance here in our topics list and probably will be making a few more in weeks to come. A brief credit to our listener, Lucius Tuck, for the Waterlago name, which is my personal favorite of the two. Because we have the number of big stories happening in national security this week, a lot of very big stories that are a lot to try and cram into 60 minutes or so, but we are going to do our best. Topic one, regrets? I've had a few. One year has passed since the chaotic U.S. exit from Afghanistan, which triggered the collapse of the U.S.-backed government and the return to power of the Taliban. What have we learned from this experience and how should it inform U.S. engagement with Afghanistan moving forward? Topic two, half-truths and reconciliation. Democrats in Congress have scored a huge climate win in the form of the somewhat strangely named Inflation Reduction Act, which passed both chambers by the slimmest of margins through a special procedure known as reconciliation that bypasses the usual supermajority requirement that the Senate operates under thanks to the filibuster. How big a deal is this, and is it a model that other policy proposals can follow? And topic three, déclassé. While the Justice Department weighs whether to release more documents regarding its search of Mar-a-Lago, former President Trump has offered a new explanation as to why so many classified records were found in a storage unit there. He'd had a standing order to declassify whatever classified records he wanted to bring home to work with him after hours. What is the latest in the investigation and where does it seem to be headed? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. So as you mentioned, Scott, it is uh, the one-year anniversary of the U.S.'s, uh, I think it's fair to say, somewhat chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan and the the end of that war, which means that there's been a lot of reflection on where things now stand, taking stock of the way that the withdrawal was carried out and where things are for the Afghan people. So things appear to not be going particularly well, particularly for Afghan women and girls who have been really shut out of civic life and of schools. Um, I've also seen a fair amount of coverage of what things have been like for Americans who kind of watched this happen, were involved in the withdrawal, and are now dealing with what I think is fair to say the moral injury of being involved in that process. So, Scott, let me start with you. I'm curious for your top line take. One year later, where does Afghanistan stand? How has the Taliban been doing as a, you know, a governing authority? You know, it's a really interesting question with a more complicated answer than I think a lot of people think. I mean, the Taliban has not been an effective governing body from the perspective of re-engaging with the international world. It made a lot of 
promises about having a more humane approach to governing than it had in the 1990s when it was similarly kind of a pariah regime, but it hasn't lived up to them. It really has re-implemented in broad sauce of the country, a pretty draconian level of rule. It's been very exclusive in terms of who it allows into its governing apparatus or coalition, really limiting itself to its supporters, not reaching out to other religious and ethnic groups or political constituencies that would like to be involved in the governance of the country in which they live. And so in that perspective, it's been a big failure. There's also been a lot of external constraints. The Taliban still remains under you know broad international sanctions. But there are other elements where it's going in a direction that might be a little bit, not better, but, but not the worst case scenario. And the two big ones are, one, this is actually the first time Afghanistan has been more or less at peace in several decades, uh, you know, approaching half a century, there is not, except for some ongoing resistance, very limited in the Panjshir Valley and a few other little pockets of the country, there's not really a large open conflict. There's still a counterterrorism effort that really is against the Taliban, between the Taliban and remnants of ISIS and certain other groups there that's still ongoing. But it's more at peace than it has been really for several decades. And that's pretty notable. And the second element is that Despite the U.S. targeted killing of Ayman al-Zahiri a few weeks ago, you know the head of al-Qaeda in the country, al-Qaeda really has not set back up big, large-scale terrorist operations or training camps or anything along those lines in Afghanistan, nor have any other groups with the Taliban's cooperation. Again, there are terrorist groups there, but the Taliban's actually kind of actively contesting with them to some extent. Um, now, that's setting aside those groups that people say are terrorist groups that are actually in the governing coalition with the Taliban. That's kind of a separate issue. But Afghanistan has not yet become a hub for major international terrorism again, like it was in the 1990s. So from those perspectives, those two things seem to be going a little bit better than maybe the worst case scenarios anticipated. But then again, we're just a year in. And it's very clear the Biden administration is very much still wrestling with how to deal with the humanitarian fallout and a lot of the other negative consequences that have come from the withdrawal decision. So Scott is too modest to say this, so I will brag on his behalf. But uh, in the the latest uh, Last Week Tonight John Oliver episode, one of his lawfare posts on Afghanistan, along with another by an, another lawfare uh, frequent contributor, Alex Zerdin, uh, was was cited. So nice, nice job, Scott. We'll uh, drop a link to both of those pieces in the in the show notes. I, I actually have a question for you, Scott. I'm curious, what is the latest on the the issue of the Afghan central bank funds in the United States. My understanding is that they're still frozen and half of them are still earmarked for victims of 9-11 and plenty of people, including people who are not friends of the Taliban, um, but who are just interested in the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan are very upset about that. Do you think that the United States continuing position on this is the right one or that the funds should, should be released? And uh, you know, if the Taliban benefit from that, then that's just ancillary. Yeah, I mean, it, the situation it really hasn't changed too much in the six months since the Biden administration enacted this policy where they took the $7 billion in reserve assets the Afghan Central Bank had and essentially took half of the money, put it in a trust arrangement or said they're going to put it in a trust arrangement. They haven't actually done that yet, in part because their efforts to negotiate a trust through the UN and certain other bodies have kind of fallen apart and haven't gone anywhere yet. But they have $3.5 billion kind of segregated out for that purpose. And the other $3.5 billion is still being contested by all these plaintiffs, primarily victims from the 9-11 attacks, who are saying that this is now effectively the Taliban's money, and therefore we can take our judgments against the Taliban and collect on them 
against this money. It's a controversial action. There are lots of 9-11 victims who are vocally opposed to this and have actually filed briefs opposing the efforts of other 9-11 victims to collect against this money in the court. And the judicial proceeding is ongoing. We don't really know how it's going to come out. I tend to think the plaintiffs are actually have a much of an uphill battle legally, um, but they're also very sympathetic. Uh, obviously, 9-11 victims are, are, are a group that I think lots of people, including in Congress and elsewhere, uh, sympathize with immensely. And, and that might be true in the court as well. Um, that might be willing to uh, perhaps stretch or take a certain favorable view of the law. And that becomes more likely in part because there's nobody actually representing Afghanistan or the Afghan Central Bank in these proceedings, um, which I think is, is a big point of concern because there's no recognized government. There's no clear party to step in. The Taliban hasn't tried to do so. And so it's not clear who can represent their interests, and more importantly, perhaps, who can appeal if they happen to lose at this stage of the litigation. So so there's definitely still a real, a real risk there, but the assets are still in this holding pattern. The real problem right now, I think the real failure on the Biden administration's part is to figure out what to do with that $3.5 billion that they have segregated out to give to this third-party trust, because it's been a long time now, and there aren't any signs they're making progress in that direction. They shot down the idea of giving it to the Afghan Central Bank tying it to the Zawahiri killing, although frankly, I think that was never really in the cards in the first place. They've always talked about some independent mechanism. But you know, the longer the economic crisis in Afghanistan drags on, the more pressure is going to be brought on them to find some way to actually get this money into hands where it can be used. All that said, we shouldn't have any illusions. This chunk of central bank funds is a lot of money, but it's primarily there to stabilize economies and stabilize currencies and, and you know import-export markets, things like that, that states deal with. It is not a panacea for Afghanistan's problems. If they work out the central bank assets, if the central bank gets all $7 billion back, Afghanistan's still going to have a devastated economy. And that's a much bigger problem having to do with foreign assistance and other issues than really just the central bank issue is, it deals with, um, even in the best scenario. Molly, I actually wanted to come to you and ask a question for you about this generally, because after the initial U.S. withdrawal and the collapse of the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan, there was a lot of talk about different types of accountability, particularly on Capitol Hill, or at least people turning to Capitol Hill for it. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans were saying, we want to investigate this because they see it as a failure of the Biden administration. A lot of Democrats were opposed to that. Some Democrats said, okay, we, you're right, we need to look into this. We need to look into the broad failure in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, not just this final chapter in which the Biden administration was, I think, any fair assessment would say, in a really difficult position because of the actions of U.S. administrations for the prior 20 years. So where has that led? Have we seen much effort at accountability yet? Or are there signs that some may still be forthcoming? And and do we know what form it might take? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. Um, and I can't think of too many examples in the past year of real efforts um, in Congress to do this. I will say that I think one possibility, and this could turn out in a number of different ways, but one possibility is that if, as many folks expect, Republicans take control of the House in November um, and have a majority there um, beginning in January 2023, that they've talked a lot about sort of things that they want to investigate, everything from Hunter Biden to the January 6th committee. And I think I suspect that um, the U.S. withdrawal from um, Afghanistan might be on that list, particularly those sort of last chaotic days. Uh, again, we'll have to we'll have to see. 
I do think, though, that one one thing that's um, sort of come to my mind um, in the context of Congress, as I've read some coverage of the anniversary, is just the really kind of far-reaching policy problems that the U.S. still has to confront as the result of um, our involvement in Afghanistan, the circumstances of our withdrawal, our efforts to um, sort of mitigate some of the circumstances of the withdrawal. So there is, for example, um, I would send listeners to um, what I found to be a really interesting article in this Sunday's New York Times Magazine about a group of um, young Afghan women who were brought to the United States um, and uh, found colleges and universities to study at in a very of a variety of contexts, uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how long they and, frankly, um, many of the other Afghans who were evacuated here. Um, here is where I am obligated to um, to plug our Lawfare podcast series, Allies, um, which is in part about this effort to get um, folks who had worked with the U.S. out of um, out of Afghanistan and sort of the failures of that. There's a lot of questions about what the U.S. did um, in uh, in August of uh, 2022. One, it didn't end with sort of putting those folks on planes and bringing them to the United States. And so there are a lot of policy questions that intersect with big, thorny, um, existing political divides in the United States here, you know, around immigration that mean that there's that like we're going to continue to feel the policy implications of this um, for a long time. Yeah, I noted that a group of of senators uh, introduced legislation to try to expand the SIV, the Special Immigrant Visa Program, and it is a bipartisan group. And I, I believe there is a also a bipartisan bill in the House. I was obviously, I mean, cheered to see that, but I have no sense of whether or not that's going to go anywhere, especially because, as you say, Molly, we're we're heading into the midterms. I mean, is it is it too much to hope that the anniversary might spur some action? I mean, I think it's probably. I mean, I th- we're just given sort of where we are in the calendar. Obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about what might be the last great major legislative achievement of the Biden administration, <laughs> um, at least on the domestic policy side, um, in a little bit. But I think, um, I mean, just given where we are, it's August. They'll come back in September, try to keep the government from shutting down. We'll see what happens at the the very end of the year. But I, you know, if nothing else, um, as I understand it, in another about a year from now, like all these people who were brought here as part of the evacuation, someone will have to decide what happens to their status in the United States. And that's um that's a, a thorny, um, a thorny political problem, um, even under the best of circumstances. And I think if we have divided government of one kind or another, um, it's a, it's just a really hard thing to think about how it might get sorted out, and with real enormous consequences for the people involved. So before we close out this topic, I want to zoom out and get your sense on a question I've been thinking about, which is how to think about the end of the war in Afghanistan, and to be honest, the failure, the defeat of the United States, I think, in Afghanistan, and what the kind of future implications are to American foreign policy. It does strike me that the complete collapse of the Afghan government, the chaos of the withdrawal, and this is separate from the question of whether the withdrawal could have been less chaotic, the, we can call it at the very least, um, harm, if not just straight up betrayal to women and girls in Afghanistan, 
I mean, all of that seems to me to be a kind of Vietnam war level discrediting of a particular kind of nation building approach. Um, and I wonder if you all agree with me that this will, for the foreseeable future, have the same sort of discrediting effect the Vietnam War had for really 30 years uh, until, of course, the wars after 9-11. Maybe Vietnam isn't quite the best comparison because there you had many more American deaths and you had a draft and it was sort of always much more, much less popular than the war in Afghanistan was. But it does strike me that this is just a, an indication that America is very bad at nation building in most situations. And I just wonder if this means that for the next 20 years before collective amnesia kicks in again, we will not be doing this anymore, no matter how tempted we are. You know, I'll say I tend to think that it is a pretty formative moment um, and one that's been coming, kind of the culmination of a moment as kind of American perspectives have turned against this broad vision of military power that we saw in the post 9-11 era and what that can accomplish. I think you're right, though, that it's cyclical. I mean, we saw a similar reaction in a lot of corners following the Vietnam War and actually the ideological roots of a lot of the neoconservative movement whose thinking informed the policies behind what became the Iraq war and the Afghan war essentially started with as reactions to the much more restraint oriented worldview of people following the Vietnam war. There is this kind of pendulum swing between the two, but at least for the near term, it does seem that, you know, the Biden administration is taking this under advisement. We've seen them much less focused, much less willing to engage on a degree of nation building and a variety of other kind of more dense engagements overseas. I think that's probably good for new engagements. I, I, I am, you know, not shy about U.S. military uses of force. I don't oppose them categorically, but I think people are way too optimistic about what they can accomplish in most cases. But I do worry sometimes that people too easily swing the other direction when we're coming out of an era where the United States has been so active overseas. I mean, the United States presence overseas that we've had for the last two decades cultivates a lot of dependency. You really build yourself into systems overseas, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. I saw it firsthand when I worked in Iraq. I think we saw in Afghanistan now what happens when you quickly pull that engagement out, but it happens other places too. So I think when you are withdrawing or pulling back or recalibrating your global engagement in a lot of areas, particularly areas where they don't have strong social and political networks, where you you are really playing a more central role than you may realize, you have to do it carefully or slowly, or you can see collapses like we saw last summer. And, and I'm not sure just automat- you can automatically just switch the car into reverse and start moving out. That's actually a more responsible way to handle situations where you've already put yourself in those situations. And there are plenty of those for the United States and the outside world. But at least in engaging new situations, it does seem we're get, like we're going to be more careful about it. Then again, We'll see what happens in Ukraine. We'll see what happens in lots of parts of the world where we have real political commitments. You know, we very well might see something that looks a lot like rebuilding, nation rebuilding or building in Ukraine and other parts, or perhaps even in Russia itself. Um, It's hard to imagine the United States not playing a pretty active role in that. So I'm not sure our nation building days are entirely over. Right. So to quote Yogi Berra, predictions are hard, especially about the future. So I, I don't want to be too definitive here. I do think that it is certainly clear that the strain of whether you want to call it restraint or isolationism has become more prevalent in American politics on 
you see it in certain forms on both the left and the right, particularly in the you know very hardcore America first folks like Blake Masters, who's running for Senate in Arizona. I do think that the fact that you know wh- whether or not or to what extent that shapes U.S. foreign policy is a different and separate question. But just the fact that it is a pretty mainstream political position now, I think, is quite striking. And it does also make me think of, you know, during the withdrawal, I remember there being a lot of debate over essentially whether or not it was wrong for the American press to focus on the appalling circumstances of the withdrawal and the situation that it left a lot of people in Afghanistan, because that was undercutting the overall fact of the withdrawal, which was good. And I think that that that's a pretty crass way of framing it. It was framed in that way by many people. And I think to me that really drove home just how strong that desire was to just get the hell out basically and don't try this again. So whether or not that sort of experience of having been burned prevents the United States from engaging abroad in the next few decades, it does feel like the sort of imprint of this on the national consciousness is going to last a long time. Yeah, just to follow up on Quinta's observation about the sort of emergence of this current isolationist wing of the um, of the Republican Party in particular, I think that you, so you, Scott, you mentioned sort of the future of our um, engagement in uh, Ukraine. And I think that you've seen a little bit among some Republican members of Congress at various points, some real resistance to the idea of kind of vigorous U.S. engagement in Ukraine. And I think it's a little hard at this juncture to judge how much of that is genuine isolationism, America first, and how much of it is, um, I don't like Joe Biden. um, And this is what the Biden administration is doing. That teasing out, untangling that, that dynamic is, is often really hard. But I do think that much more so than kind of the um, exit from from Vietnam, um, we're in this, the, the parties um, and how the parties have debates about this between themselves and within the two parties is just really different than it was um, in the mid-1970s. Um, Quinta, unfortunately, is forced to listen to me opine on this theme in a variety of contexts often. But I think this is another place where just the way that particularly the um, modern Republican Party has evolved means that it's not it's not nearly as clear to me kind of where we're going. So I'm going to do what I'm going to call the half-reversed Quinta segue. Meaning no segue at all? No, 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 like no, no. Is like a snowboarding move? No, yeah, it's the, it's like the, it's the 270 Jurassic something. Smoked fish. Not smoked fish. Stank fish? I don't know. I don't know anything. It's a real Minnesota there's reference. Some, there's some move. Isn't there some move in snowboarding about fish? Anyway, from disaster abroad to, and here's the reversal, to success at home. Whoa. <laughs> I know. I didn't see that one. So let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a little bit like the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. The Inflation Reduction Act is also not really about inflation, nor does it obviously reduce uh, it, but it's still very It impressive. is an act. 
It is, a, it is an act, and um, I don't know if uh, President Biden has signed it um, as of this moment when we are recording, and that is scheduled to happen today. He, he has signed it. I checked. I checked. He has signed it. <laughs> How a bill becomes a law, listeners. He certainly, <laughs> yes, I'm just a bill. Anyway, so after months of negotiation and uh, lots of what appear to be dead ends, like like really dead, like this parrot is dead dead ends. President Biden just signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which takes some of the most important parts of his sprawling uh, New Deal Part 2 Build Back Better agenda, in particular, the funding for renewable energy, which makes up uh, almost $400 billion, and then another I think 70 billion or so for uh, health insurance subsidies, and enacts them under the newly titled Inflation Reduction Act. Molly, this you know, look, I wouldn't say that this is why we have you on the show. We have you on the show for your wit and and humor and good vibes. But also, this is why we have you on the show. What in the world happened? How did Build Back Better go from dead parrot to uh, legislative phoenix? Pining for the fjords. <laughs> um, I like to think I could be witty and informative at the same time. Um, so the uh, the basic story here is that at about this time last year, um, so kind of in the midst of the August recess, there was this effort to jumpstart a negotiation, a process of moving a really big piece of legislation through Congress. At the time, we were calling it Build Back Better. It had some names before that, too. For a while, we were calling it like the jobs and families plan. And, uh, but Build Back Better is, is sort of what we had settled on um, by this time last year. And folks may remember that had even more than what actually passed last week did. Um, it had paid family leave. It had all kinds of childcare subsidies. Alan mentioned climate pieces that made it through. It had that it had um, more healthcare um, items. That there are a number of um, healthcare pieces that are um, in this final bill, um, including around some um, ability of Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. But so, if we go back a year, um, there's this effort to to jumpstart these negotiations, and then over the course of the fall, it becomes increasingly clear that most notably, um, Joe Manchin of uh, Senator from West Virginia, um, also Kirsten Cinema, um, Senator from Arizona, who had been sort of the two. Uh, senators who were hardest to get with the big American rescue plan that Congress had passed in the spring of 2021, that they were quite skeptical of the the breadth and depth of this um, of this bill. And so um, I think about last December, um, Joe Manchin declared Build Back Better dead. And then I think many folks sort of also thought that that was the point at which it was really dead. But folks kept working um, and kept trying to figure out kind of what were the pieces that were on the table that both you could get all 50 Democrats in the Senate to agree with and also could fit into this special box that allows the Senate to move the legislation without the possibility of a filibuster. That's what um, Scott mentioned, called budget reconciliation. And so there are rules around what you can and can't do um, using the reconciliation process. And so when I think back about it, I think it was largely, it was just kind of like a giant jigsaw puzzle. So you had this set of pieces and you had a, a frame that you needed to fit them in. And so over the course of six, seven, eight months. There were a lot of sort of largely behind the scenes negotiations. Um, sometimes they would kind of come back up to the surface and you would hear about them, but real just sort of pushing a little bit 
like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, um, trying to figure out what what could you get everyone to agree to that could also um, fit in fit in this box. And uh, at various points, Mansion also looked at new inflation numbers. This is in part why it is called, I think, the Inflation Reduction Act, because Mansion kept saying, you know, whatever this bill does, if I'm going to vote for it, it needs to reduce inflation. Higher prices are really killing Americans, not literally, um, figuratively. And that was sort of the overall story. And then in like the very last couple of weeks before it got done, this is going to seem like a dumb thing to say, but I think it's true. Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin both got COVID. And I don't want to say this is why they finished negotiating on the package, but the fact that neither of them were coming out in public and appearing consistently in the face of reporters who would have kept asking them about whether they were still working on the bill and what was happening, that can't have hurt the bill's prospects. And then the sort of last, like a little bit of a legislative masterstroke is that Schumer and Manchin reportedly reached this deal uh, and then don't tell anyone about it until after the Senate has completed action on this major China competition, what we ultimately called the Chips and Science Bill. This is supposed to build, uh, among other things, boost American manufacturing um, capacity. And so once that gets through the Senate on a bipartisan basis, then like literally within, I think, hours, um, Schumer and Manchin announced that they have reached this deal. Uh, and then there's the sort of get it across the finish line. So that that's the overall story that I think just says something about kind of the both the um, the possibilities and the challenges of legislating in the in the current environment, particularly the fact that you know you're using this process that can't can't be filibustered, but that's not magic. Like you still need to get everyone in the caucus or enough people um, in the uh, in the caucus to agree. And uh, as we saw numerous times over the course of the last year, that can be really hard to do. So this it's about divisions within the party in addition to divisions between the parties. So. <laughs> This may be a dumb question, but so is this a success? Absolutely. I mean, it is a so certainly from a policy perspective, and we can talk more about the climate pieces in a minute. Um, certainly from the like the scope of the the climate legislating that was done in this package, the scope of the health legislating that was done in this package, I think are both like that's a, it's a lot of legislating, and in the current Congress, in the sort of the contemporary Congress. Oftentimes, the only way that a party has to do their big party defining achievements is to shoehorn them into the reconciliation process because you can't get enough senators from the other party to vote with you. And no one ever sees 60 vote majorities anymore. So I want to get into this process question because I think you have invested me with this obsession, which I have run with in a lot of weird dimensions with weird legislative procedures and shortcuts. This is like a life achievement of mine. It's amazing. I've written like multiple articles on it now, (laughs) all because Molly talked me into how interesting it is. And it genuinely is. And these processes are amazing because by lowering the threshold, they really shape what policies can come out of it. So tell us what reconciliation does for these climate measures in particular. Now, I mean, we've heard about climate for years, efforts to do something on it for years. I mean, the the Obama administration way back in 2009 made like a really hard choice. They basically had to decide, are we going to do health care? Are we going to do climate? And they did health care. And people were ready to write off getting anything done on climate kind of ever, really, right? Uh, or at least in the near future. And instead, we're able to get this back, this longer, much period later, a substantial bill, maybe not earth changing, but substantial. 
But what does it mean for what that policy looks like? How does reconciliation constrain the actual policy design? Yes, there's sort of two things to say about this in the climate context in this bill. One of them is about the reconciliation rules. And I think one of them is just about like the politics of legislating on climate more generally. So um, the reconciliation process is limited to certain types of federal spending. So what we call the mandatory side of the federal budget, that's money that flows out of the federal coffers every year, uh, regardless of whether Congress acts. So it's not the discretionary appropriations process. It's not the part of the, um, the federal budget that Congress has to sign off on every year. Um, so it can touch that kind of spending, and then it can touch the tax code. And a lot of what we are seeing um, in this bill are tax provisions. So a lot of how the um, climate provisions actually uh, work, the mechanism is through the tax code. And that is one of the things that you can do with the reconciliation process. And so, for instance, one of the um, provisions that I think has gotten some attention is around um, electric vehicles. So there's an existing electric vehicle tax credit. The um, Inflation Reduction Act extends that tax credit, but puts some conditions on the kinds of vehicles that can be purchased just using the tax credit. Uh, that was a concession made largely to um, Joe Manchin. That was a real sort of sticking point for him. So it both sort of caps the income over which you can't claim the credit. Um, it, there's there are domestic production requirements for the contents of the cars. But so that's an example of how you can achieve, you can sort of incentivize um, the purchase of electric vehicles through the tax code, which really allows you a lot more latitude to legislate within the reconciliation process. The political point, which sort of extends beyond reconciliation, and more just as we think about the challenges of legislating to address climate change is this idea of using carrots rather than sticks to try and achieve policy objectives. And so one of the, so you mentioned, Scott, the sort of Obama administration era legislative effort, the Waxman-Markey bill, uh, which is the modified cap and trade system. And that really was sort of a, a sticks approach, trying to um, limit greenhouse gas emissions by capping production uh, amounts. What this bill does is it takes much more of a, um, a carrots approach, tries to incentivize people companies, individuals to change their behavior by offering them um, benefits to do so. And I think if you were to ask economists, um, they would tell you that the sort of the sticks approach is is more efficient in the sort of economic efficiency sense. It's a it's a better policy tool. But one of the things that sort of reconciliation and just legislating sort of teaches us more generally is that we often have to accept second best policy uh, tools in order to actually get people to vote for something. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, so I want to ask a follow-up on, on that very last thing you said, and, and it connects to this other question that I've had for a long time about reconciliation and its relationship to the filibuster. So as you point out, the reason we do everything through reconciliation, I mean, maybe not everything, but it feels like literally, I mean, it feels like almost everything interesting that Congress does on domestic policy has to be done through reconciliation now, again, because of this issue, uh, certainly things that are in any way controversial because of the 60 vote filibuster. And yet, although on the one hand, you have a lot of senators who seem to be really committed to the filibuster, they also seem totally happy to jam a bunch of stuff through reconciliation. And so my question is, presumably, the rules about reconciliation are just as malleable as the rules around the filibuster, right? In the sense that all the rules ultimately are just rules and just require a 50 senator vote. So why aren't we seeing, or are we seeing, an incremental attempt, just as the filibuster has been whittled down on things like judicial nominations, to widen the scope of reconciliation, right? I mean, yeah, why, why not just, just make reconciliation broader and then just call it reconciliation so everyone can claim that we're still operating under the Senate's rules? I mean, mostly I'm just confused, as you can tell. So please deconfuse me. I, I also have an important follow-up, which is, do you think that reconciliation would be less important if it didn't have fun names in it like birdbath? Um <laughs> That is a fun name. <laughs> it, is a, it is a fun name for, for listeners who are unaware. Um, the, the primary rule that um, restricts the content of reconciliation bills is um, generally referred to in honor of the late Senator Robert Byrd. Um, and at some point, people started calling the process by which it is determined what um, is an is not in bounds um, for the process, the birdbath. So just yeah. kind of clearing that up. I hope I hope some journalist got a nice gift card for that one. Just a little, little bit of whimsy. I will say this. I would still love the reconciliation process as much, even if it didn't have fun names. But as someone who loves a good pun, it has provided me with lots of um, lots of material. But Alan, I actually would argue that we have over time seen sort of the stretching of the reconciliation process and the reconciliation rules. We have not seen a sort of full scale dismantling of them, which I think would effectively be equivalent to just eliminating the filibuster. Um, but we have, for example, um, seen changes over time in whether reconciliation bills are allowed to increase the deficit for um, the uh, sort of the short term. Um, they are still under the bird rule, not allowed to increase the deficit for the long term. This is why, for example, when the uh, reconciliation process was used to pass tax cuts under the Bush administration, they were set to expire after 10 years. And then they sort of came back with a, uh, or they sort of threatened to come back with a vengeance and this tied Congress up in knots. So we've seen, um, we've also, without going even farther into the weeds, we've seen sort of this a stretching of the kinds of um, spending that have been taken up through the bills. So we've had sort of a little bit of a trend towards taking spending that would have historically been part of the discretionary appropriations process and making it reconciliation eligible by making it mandatory. But the, the bottom line, Alan, is I actually think we have seen what you are describing, but we have not quite yet sort of crossed the Rubicon into a full abolition of the guardrails around um, around reconciliation. And I 
think that's largely because at any given moment, like what will you get the senators in the majority party to accept? Um, And right now, this kind of equilibrium where we're stretching the boundaries but not dismantling them entirely is what you can get 50 Democratic senators to vote for. It's entirely possible that the next time Republicans have unified party control, they may choose to abolish the legislative filibuster entirely, or they may keep kind of pushing the boundaries of the reconciliation process. Well, from a big deal being struck in Congress, let's go to a different sort of big deal happening down in the state of Florida, where we are continuing to wrestle with the aftermath of I think is fair to describe as one of the biggest developments around President Trump or former President Trump that we've seen in the last few months or even years. And that's saying a whole lot. Um, This is, of course, the FBI search of his property at Mar-a-Lago that removed an array of records, including many classified records, including many highly classified records from that estate that the FBI maintains were classified and were not supposed to be held by President Trump under those circumstances. But in the last few days, we have heard President Trump come forward with a pretty unique defense to these allegations, which is that he actually did declassify those records when he was president. In fact, he had a standing order to declassify any records he chose to take home so that he could work on them. Um, The only problem is there's no actual evidence that he took the step. Meanwhile, we are seeing an ongoing debate happen in court over the release of various documents relating to the search. We saw the search warrant and related receipt get released by the court at the request of both parties, meaning both former President Trump and the FBI, last week. And now we're hearing more litigation about other elements, including, most importantly, the affidavit provided presumably by FBI agents that would have supported their application for the search warrant, explained what sort of conduct they're seeing that they thought satisfied probable cause for the three different criminal violations they put on their search warrant. But the Justice Department, as of today, is not interested in seeing that released yet because they say it could compromise their investigation. Quinta, bring us up to speed. What the heck is happening in this case? What are all these threads coming forward? I feel like we're getting a new couple stories every couple hours. Tie it together for us. What are the big parts of this we need to be tracking? And where does it seem like this story may yet be headed? So actually, just before we started recording, uh, the New York Times broke a story that uh, White House counsel Pat Cipollone and uh, Deputy White House counsel Patrick Philbin both were questioned by the FBI about uh, the mysterious missing records. So there, there's our, our little nugget of news for the day. Uh, so when, when we recorded last week, I think it was right after uh, the day after this search had been carried out. So we do know a great deal more now. I think the main development, obviously, was the unsealing of the search warrant, uh, not the accompanying affidavit, which would have laid out what the Justice Department's thinking on probable cause was. But it did give us more information about what they were looking for, what they took, and importantly, what statutes they think might have been violated. So in particular, uh, the warrant listed uh, 18 U.S.C. 1519, which is a statute concerning obstruction of justice, particularly involving destruction or falsification of records. 18 U.S.C. Section 793, better known as the Espionage Act, and then 18 U.S.C. Section uh, 2071, which has to do with destruction of federal records generally. So 
that's kind of where we're at. We know that at least some of the material, according to the Washington Post, uh, was potentially nuclear secrets. We don't know what that means. Um, the Justice Department did say in requesting that the affidavit itself not be unsealed, that the the investigation, and this is a quote, implicates highly classified materials. Um, and I'll note that Brandon Van Grack, recent Lawfare podcast guest and uh, former federal prosecutor, posted on Twitter saying that he thought that the addition of the word highly was intentional and significant. And that is a, a quote from him. So beyond that, it's kind of a question mark. I think fair to say this is a big, big deal. We don't really know in what direction it's heading. But Trump certainly is not very happy about it and has continued posting on Truth Social uh, to express his displeasure. Um, And there's also, I think it's fair to say, probably related to that, been a stream of violence and attempted violence um, against law enforcement authorities. So there was an attempted shooting at an FBI facility in uh, Cincinnati by somebody who appears to have posted right before on Truth Social that he was angry over the Mar-a-Lago search, uh, I believe earlier this week. Um, or late last week, uh, federal prosecutors charged another person with making threats against law enforcement again over the Mar-a-Lago search. So it's been a, a wild and crazy week. So I, I uh, before I, I actually turn it around and ask Scott a question, I, I do just want to say to Quinta's observation that Trump keeps, well, I guess I was going to say tweeting, but he does not tweeting, he's truthing on Truth Social. I do I do love the sentences that come out of that because you, you talk about Trump's truths, which I think just perfectly encapsulates the post-truth nature of a social media site called Truth Social. It feels like it has to be intentional, right? It has you to know, be. He's not, he's not tweeting, he's TSing. He's full of TS, I think is how I like to think about it. <laughs> Who I do like he's full of TS. Um, so, you know, Scott, although you introduced this, this topic, let me actually turn it around on you because you just published an excellent piece on uh, Lawfare that goes deep into this question of, did Trump, in fact, declassify? What would it take for Trump to declassify? And even if he did declassify, does it actually matter for purposes of these statutes? None of which actually, when you look at them, and certainly DOJ clearly had this in mind, turn on the question of classification. So what what do you make of all of this as a kind of legal matter? Yeah, I mean, you know, the tagline of that piece, uh, and I think sums up my view is that this discussion of declassification is pretty much a smokescreen by former President Trump and his supporters. Um, I know some people, some very informed people who I look to on a lot of these issues have, have said kind of the opposite on Twitter and elsewhere, suggesting, well, if he genuinely thought these were declassified, it could make a difference in terms of mens rea or, or proving the elements of certain of these offenses, particularly the 793 Espionage Act charge. But I, I'm not persuaded of that for the simple reason that there's no actual evidence that Trump has declassified any of this. Uh, you know, the only thing we have is his kind of word for it and the word of a couple of not so credible close advisors of his. In fact, we've seen his former national security advisor, John Bolton, come out and said there was no such order. And we know that when Donald Trump did declassify things, which he did as of January 19th, 2021, his second to last day in office or his last day in office, he did so by issuing a memorandum that he published in the Federal Register, a very conventional process. There's no signs he did anything like that in these other cases. And I think that lack of evidence is, is a real problem because when you don't have signs the president actually did something like this contemporaneously, it's going to be hard for him to show I actually declassified these things. And frankly, I highly doubt the Biden administration or the FBI would have gone forward with claiming these were classified if they hadn't done their due diligence to make sure that there wasn't a really credible record of that declassification. And then even if they were declassified, 
there's actually nothing clearly stopping the Biden administration from reclassifying these same records and creating an obligation to once again provide, return them to the executive branch and protect them. There are some complications there around elements of the law, but I don't think anything clearly prohibitive about it. And for all these reasons, there's really a clear case that these things probably had to be treated as classified by Trump and his and his allies. And, you know, to the extent they weren't, they would have to hinge it on a pretty aggressive constitutional view about, you know, former presidents essentially always being able to have said, we I declassified this internally. I never considered this classified. Basically immunizes them from any mishandling of classified information, at least that existed while they were a president. And that's just a real bridge too far in my view, even though there are, you know, certain data points about the president having a fair amount of discretionary authority over classified information. Then more fundamentally is the fact that none of the three, three statutes actually require classified information to be the subject of the criminal violation. Two of them are routinely applied to non-classified federal records, which these indisputably are, um, because these are still records subject, many of them subject to the Presidential Records Act uh, and other legislative requirements that were never supposed to be in Trump's possession in the first place. On top of that, for the Espionage Act provision, it doesn't actually require information to be classified, although it usually is used in relation to classified information, precisely because when you are prosecuting somebody for mishandling classified information, the fact that that information is labeled as classified makes it really easy to show, hey, this person knew this was information whose disclosure would hurt national security, which is effectively what the Espionage Act is targeting that sort of information, which it calls national defense information. In other words, the fact that it's classified helps you prove the knowledge and intent necessary to trigger the violation of the act. But here you had Trump and his associates knew that they had information that had been classified. Trump said he declassified it, not through any sort of analysis as to whether you know, he actually thought this information no longer warranted classification, no longer threatened U.S. national security if it was divulged. Instead, he said, I did it because I wanted to take it home. Basically, an argument that, it, you know, public purposes outweigh the, the need for secrecy here and support this limited sort of disclosure. That has no bearing on whether the release of that information would hurt national security. In fact, Trump didn't release this uh, publicly for any reason. He just kind of mishandled it and taking it home with him. And then again, there is this question of the Biden administration very clearly still thinks this is classified information, communicated it to Trump and his team repeatedly over months of negotiations. It's hard to argue that Trump and his staff didn't that didn't give them good enough reason to believe a reasonable basis to believe that disclosing or mishandling this information could put U.S. national security at risk. So I don't think the fact of declassification really enters in here. It's really much more about Trump saying, look at this overreach by the Biden administration. This stuff wasn't even classified. I had every right to this stuff. And they're raiding my house. That's much less of a legal argument than it is kind of a policy equity argument. Um, and Jack Goldsmith, I think, wrote about that intelligently for Lawfare, basically making the point, look, you know, Garland's decision to pursue this action is going to rise or fall by how serious what Trump withheld is, if there's really serious information. And I think that's true, but I also think it's true for Trump. If Trump is shown to have, you know, withheld very important nuclear secrets or the identities of covert agents, the fact that he may have declassified it, maybe even validly declassified it, isn't really much of a defense in the court of public opinion. And that combined with the fact that it's not really that relevant to the potential criminal charges either tells me, I think it's just the last resort of a, a guy who put himself in a bad position and is kind of stretching for arguments to justify what he did. So to, to me, one of the interesting features of the search has been the political reaction to it. I mean, you started with just a 
volcanic eruption of anger at the DOJ and at FBI from not just Trump, obviously, but in particular of Trump's Republican allies, not just the crazy ones, but also, you know, people who like, let's say Marco Rubio, let's say, are not as closely aligned with Trump as as others. And yet over the last, I think, week or so, you've seen a real pull pulling back um, on the part of, of folks in the GOP as more information has come out and the seriousness of the crimes has been, I think, recognized. And I'm curious, especially to get your sense, Molly, you know, as you're watching Congress, do, do you get the sense that the GOP has gone a little bit into wait and see mode and, and maybe regretting uh, just how strongly they came out of the gate when uh, Mar-a-Lago was initially searched? Maybe a little bit. Um, and certainly I think we can point to some examples of that happening. I think one of the real challenges, though, is as the story continues to play out, uh, depending on both what additional information we learn and what actions the um, FBI and or the Justice Department ultimately take, um, if there are still a sizable number of Republicans, especially in the House, um, who are still very worked up about this, who sort of are the closest Trump allies um, within the broad Trump supporting uh, House Republican conference, if there are enough of those folks to try and kind of push things in a particular direction, if Republicans take control of the House, I think that is a real concern. Um, I I think thinking about, um, for example, Kevin McCarthy, widely believed to be the leading candidate to be speaker if Republicans take control, um, what might um, various folks demand of him in a whole range of uh, ways in exchange for them supporting him for um, for being speaker? I don't know. But I do think that, you know, the longer this goes on, the more it starts to become a question of intra-Republican Party congressional politics uh, in the new year if Republicans do take control of the House. Um, and it's true of any number of issues, but I could imagine this being a point of contention within the conference in the new year. Quinta, let me turn to you for a little bit of prognostication, because I think it's interesting we're seeing this debate play out the way we're seeing it around this affidavit, right? Because in, in one perspective, the affidavits could be the most useful thing to the Justice Department, uh, its release, I mean, because it lets them lay out their full case saying, here's why we think and we argued successfully before a magistrate judge there was probable cause of criminal violations in this case and reasonably relevant evidence was at Mar-a-Lago, right? It lets them make their full case, but they're resisting it because they say it's going to interfere with ongoing investigations. Is that a strong signal about what DOJ has planned, uh, or at least is keeping its options open? And what are the odds that we're going to see this resolved You know, a little later this week when we he- see this hearing? I think it's scheduled for Thursday about whether or not this affidavit should be unsealed. Do we know, is anyone arguing for the affidavit to be unsealed other than reporters? Is Trump arguing for it? Or, or do we have a sense about how likely it is that that information is actually going to come out? Well, Trump has said, uh, excuse me, truthed 
on Truth Social that he wants it unsealed. But of course, that's a very different thing than actually, you know, filing something to that effect on the actual docket. I would be surprised if he did push for it to be released. I I would imagine if he did so, it would probably be because he's cornered kind of in the same way that DOJ cornered him a bit with the the release of the warrant itself. I will say I, I don't know. In terms of DOJ's thinking, I mean, I'm I'm curious, Alan, as our resident former former prosecutor, former DOJ guy, uh, what what your thoughts are. But it does make me wonder, certainly, the fact that they were underlining that this this concerns highly classified materials. Um, they just really, really want to keep this as close to the chest as they possibly can. And so, in that respect, I think it's not particularly surprising that they wouldn't be pushing for the release. Um, I will say I'd seen some speculation that, you know, Trump would try to get around the uh, DOJ asking for the release of the warrant by saying, I'll only allow that if you also release the affidavit. He seems to have not uh, come up with that brilliant plan in time. So perhaps this is kind of a a bit of attempting to make that happen in retrospect on his part, you know, to try to make it seem like he wants to be open and it's DOJ who is, you know, preventing the public from getting information. That said, given that the more information comes out, the worse and worse the situation looks for Trump. Um, I'm not sure how good a strategy that is in the long term. Yeah, I, I think this is actually pretty straightforward. <laughs> and I should admit, although I was at DOJ for several years, I was a prosecutor for all of six months. So uh, let's, not, let's not overstate my, uh, my illustrious prosecutorial career. But I, I don't think you need to have to be a seasoned prosecutor to get a sense that you know, the reason that DOJ does not want to release the affidavit and why it's very, very unlikely that the judge, and I think the hearing is set for Thursday to decide this issue, why the judge will, again, very unlikely release the affidavit is because there's an ongoing criminal investigation on a very serious issue because of highly classified information that people are going to jail. That may be Trump. It may not be Trump, but someone probably is because, again, it is hard to imagine that DOJ would take steps of this, again, titanic political magnitude of executing a search warrant on the home of a former president who is likely to run for the presidency again unless they were very, very, very confident in uh, the case that they that they had. So, you know, I, I think I think what's happening now is actually very unsurprising, which is that DOJ would never want to release the affidavit in this case because there's an ongoing investigation and they have to go indict some people first. So, you know, I, I think that's not terribly surprising. I mean, what what is unclear is when that will happen. You know, my assumption is was for a long time that August was going to be a, a sleepy month in the criminal travails of Donald Trump. And um, I don't think it's the case anymore. Um, So we'll see, you know, is an indictment going to come next week? Is it going to come next month? Is it going to come next year? You know, we're not, we're not sure about that. But certainly I think all signs indicate that there's an ongoing criminal investigation going on and that this is more than just an attempt to recover highly sensitive information. Although that no doubt was an important factor in DOJ's thinking on the search warrant. Well, for better or for worse, we are going to have to leave the conversation there for now as we're getting close to the end of our time. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not bring you some object lessons to think on until you hear from us next week. Alan, what is your object lesson for this week? So my object lesson is is another audiobook that I continue to enjoy through Libby, which is the app that allows me to listen to free audiobooks through my library. 
and I will always and forever be a shill for the public library system. So I will continue to plug this amazing service. Uh, the book that I'm currently listening to is by Eric Larson. It's called The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. It's about Winston Churchill and his family and uh, London and the people in London uh, during in particular, the period of, uh, you know, September 1940 through early 1941, which was the height of the German bombing campaign of uh, Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe attempt to to basically bring England to its knees, which was deeply unsuccessful. And it's just an amazing book. It's He's a wonderful writer. It's a fascinating story. And also, it, it's just, I think, a very timely book to read, given the ongoing war in Ukraine. One of the interesting features of this book is that while there are a few things as disruptive as bombs falling from the sky, normal life somehow continues. You know, people have to go to school and go to get groceries and go to parties and fall in love and, you know, go to the dentist and all those sorts of things. And it's, it's just a really fascinating portrayal um, and a really fun listen. So Eric Larson, The Splendid and the Vile. Alan, I'm going to hop in and double down on your endorsement and actually add to it because I haven't actually read The Splendid of the Vile, but I did read uh, several of other Eric Larson's other books, which are usually quite good. But the one that's very close in topic, this one is Garden of Beasts, uh, which is this incredible portrait of the U.S. ambassador to Germany and his family in the period in the lead up to World War II in Germany. And it's this incredible narrative of the complete falling apart of a society and as it slides into fascism, that is incredibly compelling uh, as was really one of the more striking books I've read uh, probably like eight or 10 years ago now, a while ago now, um, but still sticks with me. So uh, I, I'm actually Splendid the Vile is now going on my short list uh, and I'll encourage folks to check out that Larson book as well. But now that I've ended my interruption, Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I also have a, a literary recommendation. So Listeners may or may not be familiar with the writer Mary Gateskill. She's a writer of short stories and novels, which I would describe as sort of sharply observed and disquieting. I discovered that she has a substack, and it's delightful. It is truly not uh, an author that I would think of as a good match for a substack in basically any way whatsoever. Um, but it seems like just a couple of weeks ago, she just like started blogging. The New Yorker has a very sharp and funny interview with her about substacking. Um, her her posts are delightful. Some of them are short. Some of them are long, you know, detailed thoughts about the craft of writing fiction. There is a very brief and sort of stunning and sharply observed piece about Dick Cheney and the advertisement that he filmed for Liz Cheney, uh, essentially attacking Donald Trump. Um, so it's it's both lovely because, you know, if there's an author that you like, it's always fun to discover more work of theirs that you hadn't encountered before. But also just the sheer incongruity of it makes me extremely happy. So I would like to formally apologize to Substack for all of the many, many bad things that I have said about this and recommend Mary Gates Girl Substack to everybody. Well, for my object lesson this week, I'm going to return to our first topic, which is the one-year anniversary of the fall of Afghanistan. Um, this is a traumatic event for a lot of people, for a lot of Afghans, obviously, uh, also for a lot of Americans who, over the course of the last 20 years, have spent a lot of time working with Afghans, uh, working on issues in Afghanistan. 
uh, and to see that all fall apart. Uh, I sympathize with this as somebody who worked on Iraq for a long time, which was as did not come to quite as bad an ending, but has been through its hard times. You often feel it very viscerally. And and a thought for those listeners to maybe extend a little sensitivity to uh, friends and colleagues who may have spent time working on Afghan issues or in Afghanistan over the next few weeks, because I think it can, likely might be a difficult time for them. But it's also a good time to reflect on the current state of affairs in Afghanistan. And there are some phenomenal products, which I've had the opportunity to be a part of, um, which I wanted to share with you all and encourage you all to check out. One is the aforementioned episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, um, which did a really phenomenal segment in his usual wry uh, and humorous and absurd, but ultimately deeply informative and insightful way, uh, which I really encourage folks to check out and has some amazing footage and interviews about life in Afghanistan under the Taliban now. A second one, which is really, really phenomenal is a new episode of the Reveal podcast, which goes in a deep dive about all sorts of issues hovering around this question of recognition uh, of the Taliban as Afghanistan's government. Um, I had the opportunity to contribute to that as well, uh, talking about this Afghan Central Bank case uh, and some other issues. But it is really, really just a phenomenal survey of all these issues and talks to a lot of Afghans and discusses how they are engaging as members of Afghanistan's still quite vibrant civil society and various types of both resistance and reconciliation with the Taliban. That's a really interesting image into how the country is evolving. And the last one I'll plug, which uh, I believe Molly recommended earlier, but I do have to put in here is again, is our podcast series here at Lawfare Allies. It is a phenomenal seven part audio documentary. I think honestly, one of the best things we have ever done that goes through the really challenging history of the effort to save Afghan translators and Iraqi translators and other allies who helped U.S. military forces uh, and other government actors on the ground in both countries and how those efforts continually fell short and were handicapped and were often sabotaged by uh, enemies of immigration or of other policy concerns and contributed to the really, really difficult and heartbreaking situation we saw in Kabul last year. Uh, and that continues to plague us in Afghanistan today, where there are still many former U.S. partners and U.S. nationals who would like to leave the country but can't. So it is a phenomenal product. Please check that out on our Lawfare Presents feed. You can just Google Lawfare Presents Allies and you will find it there. Uh, it is all seven episodes are available to download and listen today. With all of that under our belts, Molly, let me turn it to you for our last and final object lesson. Well, first, let me say that um, I can wholeheartedly endorse the episode of Reveal that uh, Scott mentioned as an old millennial who listens to NPR over the air in my car. What a delight it was to be driving on Sunday afternoon and to all of a sudden hear Scott's voice come out of uh, my radio on that episode. So my object lesson uh, for today uh, is related to the fact that today is uh, the, the, we're recording this on Tuesday, it is primary day in Alaska. Um, there are a couple things about this that I want to commend to listeners to reflect on. One is that um, this, is, this year is the first time Alaska is uh, using a new uh, process for holding its primaries. It is holding an um, open primary, so voters uh, of all affiliations can vote in the same primary and they are using ranked choice voting and the top four candidates will advance to the general election in November. And so this is kind of a combination of a number of different electoral reforms that uh, folks often offer as possible ways 
to address uh, some of the polarization concerns in the electorate. So it'll be really interesting to see how this all shakes out. One of the um, candidates in the Senate race is current Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski. And so this also gives me the opportunity to send everyone, um, and I will uh, put a link to this um, in the show notes, send everyone back to the story of Lisa Murkowski's 2010 victory. She actually lost a traditional Republican primary in 2010 and proceeded to win statewide on a write-in campaign, which is, you know, pretty remarkable even in Alaska where the electorate is a lot smaller. And one of the things that she did as part of that is um, distributed mailers that gave people a phonetic spelling of her uh, last name so they could use it when they went to write her in, featuring both a picture of a cow and a picture of a pair of skis. It remains one of my favorite pieces of minutia of American politics of the last decade or so. And I like any opportunity to uh, tell other people about it. So that uh, that is why it is my object lesson for the day. Well, what did they do? What did she do for the mirror? Was it a uh, photo of the old Russian space station? Uh, it was not, nor was it um, a oh. photo of the- um, Lost opportunity. Uh, yes. Or of the, uh, an herb, whatever it is in the, the three kings that they bring to the birth of <laughs> mirror, Jesus. Mirror, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that might've been more confusing. Nobody knows what that looks like in the world. Nobody's ever known. <laughs> it, the, the flyers actually just say like M-U-R and then there's a picture of a cow and then there's a picture of uh, a set of seeds. I love it. But the cow, the cow has a K on it, which is very it important. It is. The whole thing is just uh, delightful and impressive. Um, and I am glad that now maybe some people who didn't know about it before know about it. I love it. That's amazing. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to follow us at RATL Security on Twitter and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit our homepage, lawfareblog.com, for our show page with links in past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other fantastic podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits, including a Lawfare Live event taking place later this week where we are going to bring all of our Patreon supporters up to speed with all our crazy internal thoughts about what the heck is going on with Waterlago. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 